These are the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, to whom sons were born after the flood. The descendants of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. Cush became the father of Nimrod, who was the first potentate on earth. The chief cities of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. Genesis chapter 10, verses 1, 6, 8, and 10. In the last episode, I stated that the following episode would describe the Indo-Europeans, or Proto-Indo-Europeans, a group of Bronze Age peoples who spread out, most likely from Central Asia, and populated a region stretching from Ireland and Spain in the west to India in the east. I will instead produce that episode after this one, and use the present episode, number 11, to explain the beginnings of urbanization in the ancient Near East. In terms of continuity, this makes a little more sense, as the episode on Indo-European origins is a forward-looking chapter in this series, in that it describes the ancestors of the Greeks and the Romans, who will be discussed in detail in the second and third series of episodes in this podcast, most likely beginning sometime next year. We are really just getting started with the ancient Near East and have a long way to go before we can speak coherently of the ancient Greeks. This present episode, then, will continue to tell the tale of the early modern humans that transitioned out of the Neolithic and into the Bronze Age in the Near East several thousand years ago. The next episode will speak of the Indo-Europeans that live far to the north, and that episode will end the prehistoric unit of this series. The episodes following that one will begin to describe the ancient kingdoms and empires of the Near East. That unit will consist, most likely, of about 20 more episodes. In all that has been covered so far, in the first 10 episodes, our ancient ancestors have been acquiring possessions, technologies, and habits that we recognize as fundamental parts of our own lives today. They mastered the environment around them. They used fire. They devised tools, made clothes, built homes, and began to rely on agriculture to feed themselves. So far, there has been one modern-day trait that these early modern humans have not demonstrated, they have not lived urban lives. The vast majority of humans today live in cities, towns, or villages, rather than living nomadically, roaming from place to place, like all of our Paleolithic ancestors. Yes, we like to distinguish between country life and city life today, small towns versus big cities, but the truth is that villages and cities are just two sides of the same coin. They both represent the sedentary agricultural life which our ancient ancestors had only just begun to adopt in the Neolithic period. Even though most of us do not work on farms anymore, we survive thanks to the success of agriculture. The cities and towns in which most of us live are surrounded, in one way or another, by land utilized for farming or other purposes which supply our food and the many other materials used in our daily urban lives. Neither people from the countryside nor the people living in cities are spending great amounts of their time foraging for food. We all live in a world founded on the agriculture that was first developed during the Neolithic. Obviously, during the Mesolithic and the Neolithic, early modern humans had begun to settle down and to practice agriculture. The exact sequence of events in this process, however, is not clear. For a long time, 
We assume that people settled down in order to practice agriculture. However, there is increasing evidence that the sequence of events was more complex than that. If you look at Poverty Point, a location in the southern United States where Native Americans built large and somewhat mysterious mounds several thousand years ago during their own Stone Age, you will discover that these mounds required large communities of men and women to build. You would assume, perhaps, that archaeologists also found remains of an agricultural society nearby, but it is not so. It turns out that the people who built the mounds at Poverty Point were hunter-gatherers with a rich diet consisting of wild nuts and berries and a lot of fish from the environs of the Mississippi River. Yet they also lived in large, cooperative communities. Gobekli Tepe, that famous location of Mesolithic architecture in Anatolia that I mentioned in a previous episode many thousands of years earlier, was built by a similar community or collection of communities, all of them living as hunter-gatherers while cooperating to accomplish large architectural feats. So humans have probably been living in sedentary or semi-sedentary communities for longer than they have been practicing agriculture. But you never know. New evidence is always cropping up, and it is likely that the sequence of events was different in many places. The process of acquiring the Neolithic package was likely a long one anyway in most places, and probably lasted centuries, or even thousands of years once it got started. Nevertheless, there is an important juncture in prehistory, when early modern humans go beyond living in small hamlets populated by just an extended family or a clan, practicing a combination of hunter-gatherer survival techniques as well as dabbling in agriculture, and begin congregating in much larger settlements. These settlements are known to modern historians as proto-cities. As far as we know, these proto-cities first began appearing in the Near East, perhaps as early as 9000 BC. However, they were few in number, and little more than large villages at first, several dozen dwellings grouped closely together, probably for defensive and other purposes. This way of life in these fortified proto-cities did not apparently proliferate quickly. We have few examples of such large settlements in the archaeological record at the same time as the two examples that I will discuss now, and we have much evidence of people living much more traditional, nomadic, hunter-gatherer lifestyles, in the several thousand years that followed the appearance of these first proto-cities. And even these best-known examples, Jericho and Katahuyuk, did not really begin to flourish until perhaps 7,000 BC. In the late 1920s, an archaeologist named Dorothy Garrod traveled to Palestine to conduct excavations near the Jordan River. Beginning with discoveries in a cave near Wadi al-Natuf, she turned up a series of finds that began to disrupt the traditional view of man's development from Paleolithic hunter-gatherer to Neolithic farmer. At least, she upset the, tr the traditional chronology of this transition. In previous episodes, I stated certain estimated time periods for the progress of hunter-gatherers as they adapted to a changing world with changing resources. This chronology is accurate for the most part, but with one glaring exception. Among the people of the Natufian culture, as it came to be called, many of these developments appear to have occurred much earlier, causing some historians to interpret Dr. Garrett's findings to be proof that the Natufians may have been the first to independently develop many features of the so-called Neolithic package, which I have already described. 
You may recall from earlier episodes that there were certain advances, if you wish to call them that, which characterized cultures that transitioned out of the strictly hunter-gatherer lifestyle of the Paleolithic to a more varied approach to survival of the Mesolithic, and which hardened into the increasingly agricultural mode of the Neolithic. There was initially the creation of smaller tools and weapons, which probably suited the reduced size of the available game after the extinction of the megafauna of the Paleolithic. There was also the advanced mastery of fire with the creation of ovens and kilns. These allowed for the preparation of bread from the wild cereals that would eventually become our modern wheat, barley, and rye. They also led to the creation of ceramics, pottery, and experimentation with smelting metals. The use of copper for weapons and tools, but mostly apparently for jewelry. This required mining and specialization in that field of work. Finally, the dabbling in sedentary life and the reaping of wild cereals became much more sedentary and resulted in permanent or semi-permanent dwellings around which fully Neolithic men and women tended their fields. Eventually, these settlements expanded into the proto-cities, which this episode will discuss in detail later. And this appears in most places to have happened on a timeline that begins very tentatively sometime after 15,000 BC and ends around 5,000 BC, as the first real cities were just about to appear in the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys. Of course, this timeline, founded on the discovery of Sumer, replaced the earlier chronology that had previously begun with ancient Egypt as the progenitor of all global civilizations. And it was amended just as any new timeline that we now embrace will be amended by new discoveries. Nevertheless, the existence of the Natufian culture is something of a footnote to all this prior discussion. But it is a very significant footnote, because the Natufians were doing all of these things long before anyone else appears to have done so. Before anything else, I should make clear that there is no indication that the so-called Natufians were anything like a modern nation-state or even an ancient tribe. The name comes simply from the place in which the initial discoveries were made, a location in Palestine known as Wadi al-Natuf. We have no idea what they might have called themselves, and truthfully, there probably was no themselves. Dr. Garrett's excavations reveal a culture spread out across the entire modern-day area of Israel and much of the surrounding countries of Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. These excavations also span three or 4,000 years of the geologic record of these communities. They depict a way of life, a culture, an approach to survival, but they do not necessarily depict any sort of ethnic identity or political structure. Essentially, when I say Natufians, I am speaking about them with the same blanket approach I use when speaking of Neolithic man or early modern humans, which represents vast numbers of people who probably had very little in common besides their choice of tools and their methods of food acquisition and their relative position on a historical timeline. Anyway, the Natufians, or their way of life, appeared around the year 13,000 BC, as far as we can tell with the present findings. What, you might ask, distinguishes their remains and relics from those of other contemporary cultures unearthed in the surrounding areas and in Europe? They did not appear out of nowhere. The Natufian culture, according to archaeologists, is a clear successor to other cultures in the area that predated them. Once again, for the sake of my own timeline, I will avoid getting bogged down in the details of this era in order order to proceed with a story that ties in, quite profoundly, with the origins of Western civilization. So the Natufians emerged from a number of Paleolithic cultures in the general area of Palestine, around 13,000 BC. They were a hunter-gatherer culture, like those that preceded them and those that surrounded them. However, you might say that they were the first to enter the Mesolithic Age. 
they possessed a more advanced technology in terms of microliths, a word which simply means small stones. They made smaller, more specialized blades than other Paleolithic peoples. Most notably, here are found the first stone sickles, which were blades used by a pre-industrial people to gather grain. It does not appear that the Natufians were actually farming. Instead, they were practicing that initial stage of agriculture in which roaming bands of early modern humans visited the same locations year after year, taking advantage of the resources provided by that location until they were exhausted before moving on. When they encountered areas rich with wild cereals, they prepared stone sickles to facilitate the harvest. This is the earliest such appearance of a foray into agriculture. Nevertheless, despite this side venture into agriculture, the Natufians were solidly hunter-gatherers, living mostly on a diet of wild game and various edible nuts and fruits from the area, as well as the wild wheat that they harvested. There are a variety of other facets of Natufian culture and technology which make Dr. Garrett's excavation significant. Remains of bread, for instance, demonstrate with certainty that these people were using ovens to bake bread with wild wheat, whose flour they probably ground down in stone mortars or grinding bowls that are also found at these sites. Furthermore, the Natufians appear to have engaged in long-distance long commerce already by 10,000 BC. Their sites often contain items from far away. Inland sites contain shells and other items from the sea and from the Nile River, while remains of figs are found that could only have been grown at distant locations in Africa. As well, the Natufians may have been the first to brew beer, which they were doing before 10,000 BC as well. Other aspects of Natufian culture do place them solidly in alignment with their contemporaries. They created art in the form of stone and clay figurines, buried their dead with ceremonies that left their interred loved ones with gifts, jewelry, and even food in the gravesite. They had domesticated the dog. This is all consistent with other Paleolithic cultures of the time. So why diverge into Natufian culture for this episode? Certainly it is interesting that they were ahead of their contemporaries, but Something else ties the Natufians to our story of Western civilization. First, if you are religious or familiar with religious belief, it should be at least a little intriguing that these Mesolithic pioneers lived in the region known to Christians as the Holy Land. In fact, the three monotheistic religions of today, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all recognize this general area as sacred. Second, and perhaps more to the point, the Natufians live in the same portion of the world where Gobekli Tepe would appear. Though there is no clear connection between the two, the possibilities stimulate the mind. One can only hope that further archaeological discoveries will tell us more about this period of human history in that region. Finally, I bring up the Natufians because they also live in the same place where what is likely the world's oldest cities appears. I speak, first of all, of the proto-city of Jericho, which exists today in the modern-day state of Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, I have delivered Jericho and its king into your power. Have all the soldiers circle the city, marching once around it. Do this for six days with seven priests carrying ram's horns ahead of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times and have the priests blow the horns. When they give a long blast on the ram's horns and you hear that signal, all the people will shout aloud, the wall of the city 
will collapse. Joshua chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. Now this event in the Bible, ancient as it is, is practically modern compared to the time period that I am speaking of. And that biblical event involved a Jericho that was an actual city, not the proto-city which I will describe now. Still, that wall which the biblical passage speaks of is a key feature of the proto-city of Jericho, dating all the way back to its conception, probably 5,000 years before Joshua and his followers brought it down. But what is a proto-city? As with so much of our perspective on history, we tend to view a proto-city as something not yet a city, something which lacks certain features that would complete its development. The average definition of proto-city that you will find, wherever you read it today, will probably state that the proto-city is like a city but smaller and lacking certain key features of a real city, such as a structure of social, social classes, uh, religious priesthood, roads, organized farm labor, specialized trades, any evidence of central planning. It should be noted right away when you consider the timeline of human history and the appearance of agriculture on that timeline that Jericho is early out of the gate in developing many of its features, including size, architecture, and culture. The first settlement of Jericho is of quite modest size. Nevertheless, it appears before 9000 BC, when other humans around the world, as far as we can tell, were just beginning to edge into the Mesolithic and consider semi-sedentary lives. Already, the people of Jericho had assembled a few score permanent dwellings together. By a thousand years later, they had also built a massive surrounding stone wall, which would have required organized labor on a large scale. By 7000 BC, the people of Jericho had already domesticated a variety of plants for use as crops, and had probably domesticated animals besides the dog, such as goats and sheep. Yet they were not really an agricultural society. They were still depending largely on a lot of wild game and plants for their sustenance. They were still definitely a Mesolithic group, uh, moving along with the rest of the human race, even if they were a good ways ahead, along a path that led to the Neolithic and the solidly agricultural way of life that would become the most prevalent method of sustaining human life in the next few thousand years. Jericho is also a useful place for this podcast to consider a feature of human culture which, so far, I have not given much attention, for lack of evidence. This cultural feature that I speak of is religion. We can surmise from the increasing ornamentation of burial sites throughout the Mesolithic and Neolithic periods that early modern humans had acquired some religious sense, some ideas about the meanings of their lives, the meaning of existence. However, we should not assume that these ideas did not exist among them until we start to see decoration of burial sites or the creation of stone figurines that may or may not be gods or spirits. This only means that they began to express such thoughts in the creation of artifacts. There is no reason to believe that men and women, hundreds of thousands of years ago, or even millions of years ago, did not look up at the stars and contemplate the meaning of life, or grieve for their dead loved ones and wonder where they might be now. Still, for the purposes of this podcast, we are focused on archaeological evidence. And it is in Jericho that the archaeology really begins to pay off in terms of learning about Neolithic religion. Around this time, about 7000 BC, in the few proto-cities that have been studied, the early modern human inhabitants had apparently developed some new burial rites which suggested a number of possibilities about their religious beliefs. 
For one, they had begun to bury their dead under the floors of their homes. The dead were placed in pits, dug beneath the area where people slept in these dwellings, then filled and sealed with plaster. The bodies of children, at least, appear to have been frequently accompanied by gifts, baubles, beads, and other pretty things. That the inhabitants of these homes slept above the bodies of their dead loved ones implies any number of things. Perhaps this was simply to keep their lost family members close. We are also aware of how those who were close to us these days and have died will often appear in our dreams. Did the people living in these homes wish to commune with the dead as they slept, to encourage dreams about their late family members? As you might also imagine, the bodies would start to accumulate in any house that stood for some time. From what excavations so far can tell us, the remains of long-dead loved ones were simply pushed aside to make room for new bodies in these graves. Now, up until this period, our ideas about religion, or at least the spiritual understanding of death, in ancient humans has focused almost entirely on grave sites. In Jericho, we discover another practice that may have been a significant part of the local contemporary religious beliefs. I refer to Jericho's Cult of the Skulls. It is a little bit theatric to call this phenomenon the Cult of Skulls. Historians really have no idea what to make of some of the artifacts uncovered in the deep layers beneath the modern city of Jericho, which include a number of human skulls that were treated with particular attention by the people of that proto-city, sometime around the year 7000 BC and sometime after that. This term, cult of skulls, suggests something macabre, as if we have knowledge of some grim ceremony carried out by our primeval forebears. The facts remain, as usual, much more mundane, while gruesome fantasies about primitive rites may actually be true, we really don't know what these skulls meant to the people of Jericho. While most of the people appear to have been buried beneath the floors of homes, for some reason, the heads of some of the dead were detached, the flesh removed, and the bare skulls decorated, you might say. As we find them now, the skulls are covered in plaster and the eye sockets covered with shells, probably meant to portray the eyes of the dead individual. They may also have been painted, perhaps to finish the job of making them appear like the departed. Speculation runs rampant, and unfortunately, some people like to make bold statements about the meaning of these finds. They declare, for example, that this is a sign of ancestor worship, one of the oldest known forms of religious expression, or that only the heads of high-ranking people were treated this way. Either of these things may be true, or some other theory, but the fact is we don't really know. I think it is important to refrain from too much speculation about the meaning of these isolated discoveries. By isolated, I, I don't mean that they are few in number. I mean that they come with no context. We have no way of knowing so far why the Jerichoans did this, nor what it meant to them. Just think how someone in the far future might discover the ruins of a home from today and discover the ashes of a dead loved one on the mantelpiece. Might they think that we all sat around and worshipped the ashes at times, they being so centrally placed in the home? when it is much more likely that they were just a memento of the dead, initially treasured when they were put in place and later forgotten as we went about our daily lives. So we should refrain from making any firm decla declarations about Jericho's so-called cult of the skull and its meaning for the people of that proto-city, just as we should with their practice of burying the dead beneath their floors. Until we acquire more context, which is unlikely, 
these practices will remain mysterious, and that is not a bad thing. It is awe-inspiring enough, after all, to consider the vast span of time between ourselves and these now nearly forgotten people, people just emerging from the ancient primal culture of our deep hunter-gatherer past and learning to live for the very first time in large sedentary communities. For them, there was no blueprint, no base of ancient laws and regulations from which to organize this new way of life. They were the first ones to do it. Everything was new and fresh for them in this endeavor. Maybe for them, it was like the whole human race was young again, and everything was a new experience, without any known consequences. No ancient tribal wisdom was applicable to this new scenario. They had to come to terms with this new world, and innovate without reference, perhaps, to any body of knowledge. What an adventure it must have been. I have continued to say proto-city in this episode, and you might wonder why exactly Jericho was not termed a proper city. It is not simply a matter of size. There are small municipalities today, smaller than ancient Jericho, which we would still call cities and not proto-cities, or at least we would call them municipalities. What distinguishes them from Neolithic Jericho? It is a question, ultimately, of organization. Ancient proto-cities lack certain elements that even the smallest towns and villages today maintain. In Jericho's case, there were no roads, or rather nothing planned and maintained by a central governing body. There obviously was some sort of organization of society, since that would have been required to build the massive stone walls that surrounded the settlement and protected it. But there is no evidence of the kind of central planning that even the smallest of towns today might provide. However, we should also remember that just because there is no evidence of central planning and organization does not necessarily mean that such did not exist. Farther north, and at around the same period of time, another proto-city appears in the archaeological record. It is known by the name Katolhuyuk, but this is only due to the description of the area in the Turkish language and has nothing to do with what the inhabitants might have called it. Like Jericho, Katolhuyuk was essentially without streets, but that may have been very purposeful. The dwellings of this proto-city, which may have held more than 5,000 people at times, were all crammed together, with no passageways in between. This could have been a defensive measure. Each home had openings in the roof, which were essentially their doors. Foot traffic, apparently, moved atop these houses, along the roofs. It is intriguing to think about how the nomadic hunter-gatherer ancestors of these people managed the transition into becoming not just sedentary, but willing to live in such crowded conditions with everyone living on top of one another and walking over each other's roofs. How long did that take? What social rules had to be bent, broken, or invented to keep the peace between individuals, families, clans? We will probably never know. And while there may very well have been a social hierarchy in Katahuyuk, it is not visible among the remains of the successive settlements on this site over the 1,500-year period in which it flourished. There is no government center or palatial residence for a king, only a massive cluster of mud-brick dwellings heaped together. Like the Jerichoans, the people of this proto-city also buried their dead under the floor and removed the skulls from some of them to decorate and preserve in a similar fashion. Katahuyuk, however, also makes an additional contribution to the study of Neolithic art and maybe religion. In Katahuyuk, 
archaeologists have uncovered a great number of clay and marble figurines. These figurines depict a wide variety of people, animals, and objects. Among them are figures of women, some of them termed goddesses. Some researchers have gone so far as to say that such figurines indicate the existence of a matriarchal religion at Katahuyuk. I should, however, reinforce the point I was making earlier about refraining from speculation. The discoveries at Katahuyuk went through an evolution. Initially, the greatest number of figurines discovered were female forms. Some of these bear resemblance to the more ancient Paleolithic carvings of maternal figures that have also been deemed as possibly religious. This led to a great deal of bold conjecture about this alleged matriarchal religion. But as time has passed and more has been uncovered, only a small percentage of the discovered figurines are of women. Most of the rest betray animals. This is not to say that there was not a possible religious focus on the maternal among these people, but only to say that there it remains a possibility and not something confirmed by the evidence. Other evidence at the excavation sites, according to recent excavators, certainly does suggest that men and women held equal status in the society of this proto-city. But this is really only interesting because we have a modern prejudice in examining the past. We begin with preconceptions about domineering men tyrannically lording it over their women, when the truth is that we do not know what the baseline Stone Age relationship between men and women really was. That men were physically larger than women, possibly much more so in the past than today, could suggest that men might have used force to acquire women's cooperation and essentially enslave them, which modern narratives tell us must be the truth about our ancestors. Then again, when you look at the animal world, do the large males spend a lot of time bossing the females around, or do they generally let each other alone except when it comes to matters of sex? Getting back to the point, speculation about a matriarchal religion in Katahuyuk, just like speculation about cults of the skulls, remains just that, speculation. We have to let the evidence of the archaeological digs tell us about the life of these distant ancestors instead of inferring possibilities motivated by our modern interests. Many of the dwellings at the Katahuyuk site also appear to have had animal heads mounted on the walls, especially heads of cattle. It is unknown if these were trophies, like those found on the walls of avid hunters today, or if they had another significance, possibly, possibly religious. It should be remembered that the cattle whose head would have been on their walls would have been much larger than our modern beef cattle. They would have been those of aurochs, the massive ancestors of the bulls and cows that we see today. A much tougher animal to bring down, for sure, and possibly a source of religious awe. Or maybe just a trophy to show off to your friends and neighbors, who were apparently walking over your roof every day. Though we can say very little with certainty about the religion of these people. In fact, it is important to remember that we cannot say for certain that they even had a religion. It is still fascinating to consider that many potential ties that we see between these archaeological sites and the signs of possible religious behavior in other ancient ancestors and those ancient practices that continued through known history and even continue into our own day. For example, the female figurines of Katahuyuk recall the Paleolithic figurines carved from stone tens of thousands of years before that were possibly subject to adoration of some sort. And we could also see how this might have led eventually to idols of fertility and love goddesses like Ishtar among the Babylonians and Aphrodite among the Greeks. And has not the Virgin Mary of the Christian religion, in albeit an unusually chaste manner, inherited the sacred focus that might have been given once to these deities? When believers sing Silent Night or What Child Is This at Christmas and recall the young virgin who gave birth to the Savior of the world, 
What do they not have in common with their ancient ancestors, perhaps singing hopeful hymns on dark winter nights before figurines of fertility goddesses in their homes? We can also see potential connections between the preservation of skulls in these proto-cities and that ancestor worship, which continues into our own day, even, in Chinese folk religion, in Hindu religions in India, and even in Orthodox and Catholic Christianity, in which saints are venerated in what could be styled a sort of vestigial ancestor worship carried over from the pagan past. Finally, the presence of bull's heads in many of their homes is something that will be referenced in a much later episode, when we consider the Minoan religion of the people of Crete, which will influence Greek religious practice and which may or may not have been influenced by Egyptian religion, which is famous for its depiction of divine hybrids, human figures topped with various animal heads. Worship, or at least some religious focus in particular of bulls and cows, is something that will be widespread throughout history and which also continues today. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the hero and his companion battle with the bull of heaven, which the fertility goddess Ishtar is sent to kill them. You might also remember the golden calf worshipped by the wayward Israelites in the book of Exodus. And then consider the way that cows continue to be regarded as sacred in modern-day Hindu religions. Someday, sometimes, it is easy to see ancient artifacts from these excavations and initially consider how distinct, how different that they make our ancestors appear to us with their strange fascination with the female form, with the veneration of ancestors, and their obsession with certain animals. But then, with a little perspective, you might pull back and look at our own cultures of today and see some similarities. After all, is it not true that today the female body is venerated after a fashion in trillions of images on the internet, or in fashion magazines, or on billboards? Is it not true that we have a fascination with fertility and the acts associated with it? And furthermore, we certainly remember our dead. We cherish their ashes. We visit their graves. Some of us even freeze their bodies in order to revive them at some unknown date in the future. Might not such behavior be construed as supported by or due to a kind of religious belief, even when those who practice such routines or rites consider themselves atheists? In animal worship, animal sacrifice, heads on walls, do we not still see today the popularity of hunting trophies, of rodeos, of bull riding and bullfighting? Looking around, do you know any people who could be said to virtually worship their pets? And does not that same ancient veneration of cattle live on today in India, if not elsewhere? No, the more you think about it, the so-called strange discoveries made at Jericho and Katahuyuk should not set the people of these proto-cities apart from us in our minds. Instead, those discoveries draw us closer to them, provide connections rather than gaps that have to be bridged in order to understand them better. Like us, they loved their families and friends. They appreciated sex and love. They were in awe of creation, and they rejoiced in it. They lamented the inevitability of death. The people of Jericho and Katahuyuk, after all this, seem quite familiar when you consider their remains and the remains of their homes in this way. During this episode, we worked our way northward from Jericho and Palestine to Katahuyuk in the Anatolian Peninsula, where modern-day Turkey lies. In the following episode, we will go a little farther north, to a region northeast of the Black Sea and west of the Caspian Sea. Here, sometime during the Bronze Age, 
a very important culture, most likely originated sometime around 4000 BC, before spreading out in all directions, bringing with them their own language, culture, and religion, as they replaced indigenous populations one way or another, and established themselves solidly in regions spanning from Ireland in the west to India in the east. These were the Indo-Europeans, and if you are listening to this podcast, you are listening to a language which is a descendant of that now lost language of theirs. In fact, most of the languages spoken in Europe, North America, South America, Australia, and parts of Asia, are descendants of this language. But we actually acquired much more than just languages from this ancient tribe, and the focus of the next episode will be to consider the legacy with which they have left us. That episode will be the final episode of the first unit of this series, the unit on prehistory. After that, the episodes of the second unit will begin the study of the civilizations of the ancient Near East, beginning with Sumer and including Egypt of the Pharaohs and many other kingdoms and empires. I hope that you look forward with me to the long journey ahead, which will end someday with the history of the times in which we live now. Until then, we have a long way to go, through Egypt, through Greece, through Rome, the Middle Ages, the Industrial Revolution, the 20th century, and many other interesting periods in Western history. Thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.